Let me invite you to remain standing as we go to our scripture text for this morning, which is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Let's give our attention to the scriptures. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of the world, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and, Gen and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were, were strong, were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, that are to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, we are your people, that which we read, that which we preach, that which we inwardly consider and meditate upon is your word. We pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe, and wills to obey this your word. For we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Please see you. Before I go much further, I, I do want to um, do want do want to let you know that uh, it's good to be back here among in your midst of, uh, for this Sunday. Um, uh, when uh, Rick also mentioned the picnic afterwards, I was really tempted to text back to him, "If you feed me, I'll come." <laughs> but. Anyway, we, I want to bring you also greetings from Heartland PCA, our pastors, our, our elders and deacons, and our congregants. I want you to remember that Kirk of the Plains uh, is regularly rem remembered in prayer during our worship services. And we will continue to do that, I suppose, until you're all perfect. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe, maybe you've heard the saying that... In, that if you find the perfect church, don't join it. Because 
your very presence will guarantee that the perfection will be gone soon. <laughs> There's a truth to that little saying that it points to. That in every church there's a gap between what the church should be and how they really are. But among the churches that we find in the New Testament, none displayed this gap more than the church in Corinth. And it wasn't as if they didn't know better. Paul, in the early 50s, came to Corinth, spent a year and a half in Corinth, evangelizing, discipling people before he departed. But by the time of Paul's letters to this church, things were pretty messy. Reports made their way to Paul about factions, immorality, and an obsession with personal status and the approval of the eye, in the eyes of the culture. It's these problems and more which prompted Paul to write this letter that we know as 1 Corinthians. And he wrote out of the conviction that this church's problems were occurring for one overriding reason, that they failed to be shaped by the cross. They failed to see that the cross of Christ was more than the historical event of his death. They failed to see that it was a way of life and discipleship demanding humility and service. But the message of Christ's crucifixion was falling out of favor in that church because it was deemed too offensive, too bloody, too shameful a story, too negative about people to be, to be accepted. You could probably think of their mindset in these terms of people who said to themselves, surely it's possible and even praiseworthy to maintain a faith which would be approved by the city at large. But it should come as no surprise that Paul was determined to return to the basics. For this church, Paul had one message, one thing of importance he wanted to communicate. We preach Christ crucified. Our scripture text of this morning represents Paul's statement of the gospel, the gospel of Christ crucified, the gospel which the Corinthians needed to remember and embrace. But what makes the cross of Christ the center of life and ministry? To put it a different way, what makes the cross the weight-bearing beam for the church? Why do we preach Christ crucified? We find in our text three reasons. And the first one is this. That God has ordained this gospel as the means by which we are saved. Now the words we read in the very beginning of our passage are actually an explanation of a statement Paul previously made in verse 17. Where he said this, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with the words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul just confronted this church about their factions because they made much of people's names. I belong to Peter. I belong to Apollos. I belong to Paul. And they created fanboy clubs under everybody's name. And it led 
to even further division because suddenly it mattered who performed your baptism? Who baptized your household? Peter? Great. Paul? Excellent. Maybe some one of the leaders you don't know so well? Eh, not so much. So Paul made it clear that his calling as an apostle was not primarily tasked with the performance of baptisms, but with the call to preach the good news of Christ. And that brings us to verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The first point he makes here about the gospel that he preaches is that it's a word set apart from everything else. No other word, no other message shares that status. As God's word, the gospel is a message that changes people's hearts. Peter explains it this way, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. The word of God is set apart because it's living and it's life-giving. But that same word creates a separation between those who receive the gospel and those who reject it. And these two groups, the believing, the unbelieving have different estimates about what this gospel is. Those who are unbelieving, Paul says, see the cross as folly. It's unbecoming. It's beneath our dignity. It's offensive. And this was something that the church in Corinth needed to hear because this church valued the approval of its city. They had no desire to go against the grain of culture. They didn't want to make waves. But Paul was intent to force upon them this one reality. The gospel will create divisions. And the gospel will make you a fool in the eyes of the world. This is the cost of the gospel. But this cost is more than offset by something greater. The word of the cross, Paul says, is the power of God for salvation. It changed people's lives in Corinth. When you get to chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians, Paul again called upon them to recognize the effect the gospel had in their lives. He writes, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you receive, in which you stand, and through which you are being saved. His point is that the gospel, this message of Christ crucified, that they were devaluing, was the very reason for their existence. It was the only thing which separated them from the world and separated them from the eventual judgment of the world. In our day, that's the truth that has to be said again and again. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, but it can make us the object of scorn of those who reject it. It's folly, they say, scandal. And increasingly in our world, there are a lot of pockets, there are a lot of spheres in which there's no shortage of verbal abuse for those who believe in Christ and who claim him. Now, people don't probably use the word folly anymore, but the words they do use pack a punch. You're haters. You're fascists. You're deplorables. You're bigots. 
And the reason for some of this is a shift has taken place in Western culture because, say, 20 years ago, Christians and Christian teaching may have been looked at as odd and strange, but in general they were tolerated. You do your thing, we'll do ours. Now, even that tolerance is disappearing, and all things Christian are viewed as evil, as unworthy of respect. I, I would uh, recommend to you uh, the book by uh, Australian author and pastor Stephen McAlpine. It's called Being the Bad Guys. It's about this very phenomenon that, that we who once were kind of at the center of things in our culture have now been kicked out. How do we be the best bad guys that we can in those circumstances? That's what his book is about. Both then and now, the word of the cross is a scandal to the unbelieving hearer. They put up a big poster sign saying, folly. But we have an even bigger poster that we need to pay attention to. And that's the one from Jesus, who says, forever who is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous generation, of him will the Son of Man be also ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And for that reason, says Paul, we preach Christ crucified. So Paul has said so far about the cross and the world with rejection of it does make clear that there is a substitute religion, a substitute philosophy, which is acceptable to them, which they're willing to accept. Paul recognizes this and gives it a name. The wisdom of the wise. The discerning, discernment of the discerning. It's a wisdom which is self-referential. In other words, it's a wisdom which does not acknowledge anything outside of me. It's this counterfeit faith that leads to Paul's second reason for preaching Christ crucified. And the reason is this. God has subverted the wisdom of the world's elites. Whatever man-made beliefs the world promotes, God has or will short-circuit it. And the evidence of that, Paul says, is in the Old Testament. It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Now, where do you find that? It's actually from Isaiah 29, and refers to people from Judah and Israel who believe they know better than others what the future is going to be like. And they're convinced that as long as people come to the temple and make their appearance, everything will be fine. In, in fact, in Je Jeremiah, it's recorded this, referring to the people of the, of the city. Come, let us make plots against Jeremiah, for the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Let us not pay any attention to any of his words. Of course, Isaiah and Jeremiah knew better. Paul knows better. And, he's, and he invites the Corinthians to draw the lesson. These people went down in judgment. They were, some of them were killed by the, Babylon, the Babylonians. 
Those who survived were doomed to wander around without people, without a land, without a temple, and without the God they took for granted. The lesson Paul is drawing here is that these men of Judah and Israel were oriented to this world, its kingdoms, its rewards. But where are they now, he asked? The wise, the scribe, the debater, they're gone. And here's why. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now this wisdom of the world uh, extends beyond the leaders of Judah and Israel. It applies to nations and their rulers. Isaiah writes, he brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them, and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. We're invited to see here that whatever wisdom or insight comes from the world ultimately can't be the foundation for our faith. It's destined for the dustbin of history. None of these so-called wise people can grasp God or his purposes. Much less can they bring people into a right relationship with him. So what can? It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who would believe. We preach Christ crucified, said Paul, because the Christ who died a scandalous death on the cross is the power and the wisdom of God made visible to those who believe, to the eyes of faith. Now we all know we live in chaotic times. We live in a world where people look big and God looks small. And, and because of that, our instincts can lead us into anxiety and speculation. When Russia invades Ukraine, what's going to happen? What will President Biden do? What will Vladimir Putin do? What will Premier Xi of China do? To which the testimony of Scripture is, he blows on them, and they wither. And they're gone like the, 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 the waste of the, the field. This is something that we find in Scripture. We think of uh, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon in the book of Daniel. He, he steps out onto his roof. He surveys all that Babylon is in, and he says, Is not this great Babylon which I have built with my own wisdom? And the next thing you know, he's out in the field covered with grass, eating grass gone into a complete meltdown. I would not have wanted to be his press secretary at that time. That would be bad. How do you explain this? The truth is, it's God. And that's what we need to remember concerning our world's leaders. Not one of these people will, will be 
in charge of things more than one second beyond what God has ordained. Period. So, Paul says, we preach Christ crucified because the seeming tragedy and weakness of the cross is God's reversal of the world's wisdom. It's turned it on its head. And Paul says, look, if God were even foolish, his foolishness would be infinitely wiser than man's. If God were weak, his weakness would overwhelm the strong. And all the king's horses and all the king's men will oppose it in vain. So Paul reminds the Corinthians that this gospel message, which seems too offensive and weak for some, and ignored by others because it's not a path to greatness, that this gospel is underwritten by God himself. The God of the Bible works through this gospel among humans with complete sovereignty and undeserved grace. And God's sovereignty and grace are on display in the church. While people strive for superiority and popularity, God has elected people to eternal life in complete contempt for what the world counts as greatness. The gospel proclaims this. Paul continues to preach at Christ crucified. Why? Because God, thirdly, has chosen the humble, the weak, and the lowly to be blessed in this gospel. So beginning in verse 26, Paul wants the church to see how personal, how sovereign this election is. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. In Paul's theology, no one is deserving of the kingdom of God. And even further, no one naturally has a bent toward God. It's just the opposite. So it is against all odds whenever someone does hear the gospel and believe. Paul thought of himself in those terms. You find this in 1 Timothy. I thank him who had given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me in his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy. And the grace of our Lord overflowed with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul is God's show and tell. Paul is, is doing such a, uh, something here in which he simply says, now take a good look at me. What do you see? Try to make sense of all this apart from a God who rules over everything and shows mercy to sinners. I was a Pharisee. I opposed the church. I arrested many. I condemned others to die. 
And I did everything in my power, he says, to stamp out this evil Christian thing. Now fast forward to today, he says, against all odds, I am a Christian. Against all odds, I am an apostle. This is God's show and tell to demonstrate both his power and his grace. And all this Paul spells out not to garner attention for himself, but to help the church realize and recognize the grace responsible for the conversion of the worst of us. The least likely man to sign on to serve Christ. That was Paul. But in doing this, Paul has the Corinthians in mind. Who are these people who make up the church in Corinth, for example? They're not the persons they might dream they are. In fact, most of them represent plain, unvarnished, undistinguishable people that you could find anywhere. Paul reminds them of this. He says, I know, you know, everyone knows. This people is full of no, this church is full of nobodies. There's no denying it. There's no fighting it. But here's where he's going. He says, because of this, maybe you feel ashamed. Maybe you feel looked down on. But that's the way the world works. The world controls and confirms status, approval, applause, and acceptance. And if we're desperate for those things, then they have us over a barrel. They'll hold out the carrot in front of us to follow until we do what they do and love what they love. But that's not the way God works. The world oozes and oozes and awes over people we might call the glitterati. But God sees things differently. He chooses the rejects, the foolish, the weak, the despised, the undeserving, the no, nobodies, the deplorables. God is choosing all those crayons out of the box that just are not very bright. And these people he passes on to his son. And now and forever they belong to Christ. Now and forever they are the objects of his love and the recipients of his salvation. With Jesus, we possess a beauty that the world will never find. In Jesus, we have been set apart for something unimaginable. The very glory of God. Now none of this in a sense, is really new stuff. But Paul is concerned that we get it. And if we get it, there's a quiz we have to take. It has serious questions about serious things. Are you ready to give up imitating the world's big men, their big ambitions, their big organizations? Do you, are you willing to not try to do a makeover on your church to live up to somebody's expectations? Are you ready to give up trying to impress others? Trying to make a name for yourself? Can you rest in the knowledge that apart from anything you possess or anything you do, God has chosen you and set you apart for his glory? Do you dare to believe 
that those whom God predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you have the audacity to claim that nothing and no one will be able to separate you from the love of God, which is Christ? I'm going to leave those questions with you here this morning. Only you can answer them. Only you know in your heart of hearts what you will do, what you will love, what you will seek and believe and trust. Paul's invitation then, and my invitation now, is to embrace Christ crucified. The message of the gospel, the good news, that there is a God powerful enough and loving enough to make all things new. Let's take a moment and meditate upon God's word in silence. Let us pray together. Our Lord and God, this is love not that we've loved you, but that you have loved us and sent your Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. From before the foundation of the world, you chose the unloving, the distrustful, the weak, and the undeserving to belong to your Son, our Savior Christ. In him we find the loveliness we lack, we find the wisdom that we too often ignore and the home that we will always long for. Grant that we may embrace the cross of Christ as the path of life and peace, now and always. Amen.